is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor at Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. Just the other day, I saw the results of a brief survey. I can't vouch for the people who asked the questions or who their audience was, but the results were interesting. Now, despite the fact that we're all supposed to be media savvy and understand the basics of persuasion and influence in what we see, we're vulnerable to most of us to the old tactics when it comes to forming our opinions, which is why people still flood the media spaces with bogus information. Claims of surveys and reports, analyses and investigations are all over the place ginned up to get us to think in one particular direction or another, and they are about as accurate as the headlines from the National Enquirer. And this is especially true when it comes to religious topics, where it seems opinion and doctrine and tradition are nearly indistinguishable from one another in the mind of those who write about such things. The upshot of all this is to be wary of any reports having to do with what people think concerning the faith. But on the other hand, people do occasionally publish articles they regard as breathless truth that are about as groundbreaking as knowing that Europe is east of the Americas or that birds have feathers. It seems there is a baseline of understanding and attitude that forms the foundation of what we are to believe and understand, a place where we begin from, and it receives its due from the media regularly. This news is cast in the terms which we understand and affirm so that we'll read it and allow it to form up in our consciousness to buttress what we already know and understand. These things become the aggregate pebbles in the slurry that sets up to reinforce the foundations of our opinions and attitudes. It's like the opinion polls that are produced by the presidential campaign committees or surveys taken by the fan clubs of rap stars. They're designed to produce an effect and solidify what we already know rather than to really measure, evaluate, or inform. One such preposition is the tidbit in the media the other day. It reads, people trust in prayer, but not in the church. That's a headline that could be published at any time in the last 500 years of Christian history, and it would not have been considered groundbreaking, nor would it have been considered particularly informative. Prayer is primo, church is churlish. What a revelation. Reminds me of a billboard along I-35 from Norman to Oklahoma City, posted about 20 years ago. This billboard, seen by hundreds of thousands of drivers every day, advertised one of the mega churches springing up between Edmond and OKC. The advertisement read, hate church? So do we. I thought it was pretty pathetic, but like a lot of things like that, it was also pretty clever. After all, there is an endless reservoir of hurt feelings when it comes to any version of the church. So why not leverage it for your your version? We all know Any version of the church takes it on the chin when it comes to public opinion or our culture's evaluations of things. This was evident one time when I was reading a brief selection of the autobiography of Roger Ebert. You know, he was the movie critic who had the program on PBS with Gene Siskel. In his recounting in his youth, he talked about when he was an altar boy at one of the parishes in suburban Chicago. He just started out as an altar server and he messed up during Mass. Like most things, when you're a kid, it wasn't that serious, and it certainly wasn't anything that the priest there hadn't seen before or hadn't dealt with before. But when he got back to the sacristy, little Roger burst into tears because he hadn't done things as perfectly as he should have or as he thought he should have. 
when he saw this little one crying, the pastor sat down and had the little altar server come up and sit on his lap until he stopped crying. The priest then told him it would be okay, he could come back and serve Mass next Sunday, and everything would be fine. We all make mistakes, the pastor said. Now, to this very touching moment, Roger felt compelled to add, that I know of, this priest never abused anyone. He didn't abuse me. Now, to a moment of genuine compassion and sensitivity, this man had to demean the one person who apparently had the capacity to understand and respond in his life with some real kindness. There were no comments, at least in this section, on what life at home was like for the Eberts. That is, the church takes it on the chin, at least it takes it on the chin in our age, which is what we all have to deal with. There's no getting away from it. In the collective opinion and points of view in our world, it's simply what it means to be in our day and time, what it means to be the church. In the world formed by the collective opinion we live with, the church is generally understood to be ineffectual at best and actively demonically evil at worst. Thirty years ago, it was possible to find priests and clergymen who were more or less mascots and cheerleaders uh, on the media. Think of Father Mulcahy on MASH or Pastor Inkvist on the Prairie Home Companion. Occasionally, they would pop up on some of the popular programs as men of integrity and backbone who could swim against the tide, but they were usually only minor characters. But in our day and time, all these, all these years later, there are boobs or businessmen when the writers are being kind, or abusive manipulators when they're focused on as more than background wallpaper for a wedding or a funeral. These clergymen represent the church to everyone who consumes this media. So it's tough to be the church. And we have to face facts. The church has a history of abuse and irresponsibility. There's no escaping the reports and exposés concerning what priests and other clergymen have done. Most everything reported about the Catholic priest sex abuse uh, situations have been true. The things reported did take place, and they weren't dealt with in a manner in which those who suffered the abuse were taken seriously. There's no question about that. Everyone had the right to expect the Catholic Church to act differently than it acted, and they were disappointed. At the same time, we also deal with the scandal that among those who report these things, some victims are just more interesting than others. Think back to the church headlines over the last 20 years, and you'll know what I mean, especially if you compare those headlines with some others that eventually included Olympic gymnasts, associates of the DEA, and the nieces and nephews of some of our most well-known political families. All of this goes to make some victimizers more interesting than others, and some much less so. So it is the case that it is not the sexual abuse of minors that captures and freezes the attention of the media. Rather, it's the reports of such things from the perspective of clergy and parishes that become the most interesting and therefore the, the thing most commonly reported on. As we begin to learn about the persistence of abuse at every level of society and among every institution and organization, we also find out that the church's response is considered scandalous now because at the time, it was the same as every other institution in society with the same rationale, the same evasions, and the same justifications. The scandal of the Catholic Church was that it was not sufficiently different than everyone else in society in its approach or definition. Several years ago, I reviewed a novel written by a Canadian journalist that encapsulated this restricted interest well. In the novel, a priest is sent back to his hometown on the east coast of his province because there's a suspicion of untoward behavior 
on the part of the local pastor. The novel unfolds as we come to know the character of this priest who's sent in to evaluate and decide about this situation, the content of his family and community, and their many connections and dramas of life. In the midst of the story, we find out that there is indeed the revelation of child sexual abuse, but because it doesn't involve the pastor or the parish in any direct way, nobody's interested in it, and there's nothing done about it by anyone. It's only a novel, of course, but it resonates with what I've seen and experienced in a number of the places where I've been pastor. The church often takes it on the chin, not because she's innocent of accusation or of poor performance, but because there's a standard of expectation held out that no one else in society or history has observed. After all, who likes the church? It doesn't have many defenders. Of course, we live in a critical, deconstructive age in which any support for or enthusiasm about any institution is thought to be irresponsible and ignorant. There aren't too many institutions that are celebrated for their integrity or held up for their bravery across the generations. Political parties, the military, all of American history, public education, the CDC, medicine, big pharma, even the breakdown of the sexes. They're all under genuine suspicion as being oppressive, untruthful, and manipulative. Ironically, even the giant protest movements have nearly collapsed due to their own incompetence and outright fraud and manipulation. If the reports about those who are the putative founders and leaders of Black Lives Matter are to be believed. Criticism of the church sounds familiar. The standards of today don't fit well into the templates of yesterday. And there's nothing more yesterday than the Catholic Church. In fact, the headline for criticizing the church is that it is always mired in the past and is not responsive to the needs of the presence. There's always the hint that she lags behind when it comes to being aware of and attentive to the situation in which we find ourselves in. Just take a look at what priests wear and how they live. Our wear is, uh, we wear our daily black clergy clothes that have their origin in the Middle Ages and are designed to set us apart from all the rest of the world these days. And when we celebrate Mass, we're wearing a version of what would have been the everyday wear of the second century, with a few things added on as consolation to the passing ten extra centuries after that. We're cocooned in the thick blanket of years as just as we walk down the aisle and greet our people on Sunday morning. How could we not be trapped by our loyalties and preferences so deeply rooted in years gone by? No wonder no one wants to defend the church when it comes to the religious anxieties and the religious enthusiasms of today. We're just not on the cutting edge, obviously. Of course, you might be able to make some case for the dignity of tradition by taking a brief look at Billy Graham in one of his three-piece suits and wide ties from the 1970s, or a shot of Jerry Falwell in his tan suit and white shoes from, I think, the early 80s. A window onto that look is enough to realize that up-to-date doesn't always mean up-to-snuff. It doesn't take too many cringe moments to begin to appreciate the dignity of being rooted in something other than mere style, which is something like mere opinion. It shifts as quickly as the weather and more violently. Plus, the church is full of those people who betray all the beautiful things she stands for. Of course, there are the saints who fill up the pages of the encyclopedias with their accounts of their teaching and their charity. And we acknowledge that in many cases, they led the whole world into a new understanding of what it means to be a human and to be a person of service and joy. Not only that, saintly service was as likely directed toward those who shared none of the faith of the ones who served them 
as it was to those who believed what they believed in common. Even in our day and time, the lives of the saints have their place among us. You have to be pretty hard-hearted not to celebrate Oscar Romero and Mother Teresa or Sister Mary McKillop and all they had to offer the world. They were saints and representatives of the church in the best way. They fit into the lists of all the best people in common society, the Dr. Martin Luther King, Dag Hammarskjöld, or Oscar Schindler list of those whose service to everyone is notable and worthy of celebrating. We all know there have been saints like them. But saying that, there are so many in the church who have betrayed the church with their small-mindedness and harshness. The beautiful teachings of Jesus calling us to find in our brothers the very source of eternal life These are often ignored by those who are closest to the life of the church. How many priests and bishops have we heard of who put their own projects and their own comforts first when dealing with other people? How many times has it been the case that the church was cruel or hard-hearted with those who only wanted some help and a chance to advance and to be treated well? We all know the answer, and we know the criticism is nothing new. It's been around since the beginning of the church at its founding. There were those in the Acts of the Apostles who were part of the original gathering of the apostles who thought of themselves first and of others last. It's been a problem in every age and among every group. No one who has spent even a little time around the life of the people of the church escapes it. They all know, they all know it to be so. The church can be filled with small people who have small ideas and small minds, especially when it comes to dealing with other people who aren't like them. All of the hospitals built and staffed, all of the schools founded and maintained, all of the universities invented and opened, all of the hospices, nursing homes, nursing schools, medical schools, trade schools, food pantries, mothers groups, single mothers support organizations, adoption agencies, Catholic charities associations, anti-child trafficking promotions, and the other organizations and brotherhoods founded since the beginning of the church dedicated to taking care of the needs of those who are ignored left behind, or remain invisible in common culture, they're all just outshined by those church people who don't get it. Not everyone who's a Catholic and not everyone who says she believes is honest and upright. It's a tough truth. Being part of the church doesn't make a person a saint. Far from it. It seems to place them in jeopardy when it comes to actually hearing and putting the gospel into practice. Or at least it seems to be so. After all, It's common to hear those whose great-grandparents, grandparents grandparents and parents who all went to Catholic school for free, complain that the church doesn't care because their children and and grandchildren can't likewise go for free. It seems like the church is clotted up with those who just aren't getting it. Who likes the church? Prayer, on the other hand, is pure and good. Raising our eyes from the travails of this world to the beauty of the transcendent has going for it the ultimate attraction that it is not mired in the dust and mud of this mortal coil. For those who have discovered the goodness of prayer and its invitation to the highest reaches of the divine, there's nothing sweeter and nothing more important. It's no surprise to anyone that the first response on the part of anyone who has his eyes open is to cast off the concerns of the dreary hallways and stained foundations of the church in order to make prayer as fruitful and as meaningful as possible. There's nothing new in this either. The famous author Annie Rice did this several years ago when she turned back to the church of her youth in a moment of great inbreaking experience of spiritual awakening. St. Augustine had this same experience when he began to understand the seductive power of the scriptures and their offer of new life and new possibilities for him. 
An entire new spiritual movement was founded in Los Angeles in the first decade of the 20th century, more than 100 years ago, almost completely dedicated to the power of prayer and the realities of God at work in the lives of those who encountered it. And their responses were almost exactly the same as the author of the billboard we mentioned before, the, the one about how, many, about how people hated the church. They decided to leave the church behind and get on with what they knew about prayer and goodness. Who wouldn't want to do such a thing? What could go wrong? Well, that's a curious question, one that has not been adequately answered very well in the crisscross of days and years, especially in our religious environment. What could go wrong when people are tuned into the beauty of prayer, especially when they're clear-minded and convinced of the power and beauty of their actual experience? The people most enthusiastic about the power of prayer are those who have experienced it, not those who've read about it or merely heard other people talking about it. If people really are tuned in to what the voice of God is speaking to them, why drag this promise through the dust and the muck of the streets? A few years ago, when I was first ordained, I went to a meeting of the ministerial alliance in the place where I was assigned. This was the first time I'd done much work with ministers, and I had almost no experience with the ways of with the ways that other places did things. After we met, we were walking out when one of the other very young ministers stopped and asked me to spend a moment talking with them. In their church, there are no ordinations or strict divides about clergy and lay people. There are only those who've been hired to run things and those who make up the rest of the church. He noticed my youth and my sincerity, and so he asked, what do you do when someone who was the one of the founders of the church says that God told me to tell you to do this. That was a real concern for him. After all, what do you say when someone else says they heard God telling them something? I told him in reply, we have a very sophisticated way of discerning whether it's God's voice or simply the imagination of the person speaking. And you see, it's imperative to have this. There's nothing more confusing and nothing more potentially upsetting than the claim that God is speaking, especially if there's no common vocabulary about authenticity, validation, or purposeful action. Prayer directed toward anything other than personal experience always becomes something more complicated than personal opinion. The church exists in order to preserve the power of prayer in people's lives. Just as in any aspect of personal experience, without some measure of boundaries, it can spill over to erode and destroy just about any part of what we, what we know as decent and normal. What might not be so bad as we look out and discover what the world considers to be normal, but it also has the power to undermine everything we know to be essential to the good of human thriving as well. We all know, and the church knows, no matter how sincere another person is with regard to her experience, she may be mistaken, and not in some detail or tiny bagatelle, but in the foundational framing of what she has experienced and what she understands. Without the, common, without the combined experience and the common wisdom that the church embodies, even the beauty of prayer has the possibility to fade into the rot of the ages. The church, it seems, is necessary for the goodness of the rest of life and the joy of the transcendent come to full flower. That seems counterintuitive in our day and time. After all, we know so much of what's wrong with the world and with the church, and now might not be the time to defend the church. We can get into that at another time, because the church can be defended quite strongly. 
and those who attack her and complain about her mostly do out of staggering prejudice and ghastly ignorance more than anything like real justification or even accurate information. So we can suspend our justifications and simply imagine the church to be something like the barbed wire fence around a pasture. It keeps those who can make the most use of what's there on the inside, protected, and in the spot best for them. While it also makes possible the free flow of traffic and the best use of the space on the other side of the fence for those who need to get from one place to another. Barbed wire isn't the best image, and a protected four-lane highway isn't the best analogy, but it serves. The church has a place. Or we might imagine the church to be the fertilizer necessary for the roots of our garden plants. If we want to see the garden thrive, it's not a question of how thickly things are planted and not just a matter of which variety or how straight the rows, but instead has to do with what feeds the roots and prompts the best growth. Fertilizer is often unpleasant to handle. It smells bad, looks bad, and it's best when it's turned over into the ground and can't be seen. But it makes all the difference between making it to next year or starving. The church is just like that. It's important. So be careful about opinion polls and reports. Also be careful about what other people think, especially when they're not thinking. And remember, the church was founded by Christ for a reason. Not one of the reasons, not one of the reasons for its existence had to do with how popular it might be. We might even remember that when it was most celebrated, most effective, most holy, and most spiritual, it was the least popular of all. Who knows what might be, what it might be in the time to come. Back in just a moment. our final segment, Faith in Verse. Our poem today is called The Thunder Rumbles. Thunder rumbles through the morning moments as the sun crests the orange horizon line. The morning light clouded, all on low tint, muted according to nature's design. The rumbling air sounding anticipates rain in the a.m. to come today soon. Is the swinging open of heaven's gate as we hear the crash and the softening boom. Earlier ages imagined the various gods at play in the lighted hallways of the still air as they rode in battle to wound and slay and enjoyed the right to kill without care. We know such divinity is muted. Our understanding is much deeper now. God's will in these times we have refuted. We're contented with what mere physics will allow. And I wonder if we have progressed far by permitting such moments to pass us, leaving the world, leaving the natural as without par, alive in this world without fear or fuss. God does gamble through the dawn, our, through the dawn of our lives and accompanies our many journeys, not only how we in privacy strive, but in everything touched by nature's breeze. That's the thunder rumbles.
life of the faith uh, that is uh, founded and and sustained by the church is with us always. Hope that in the uh, days to come, you can join us as we continue to explore what it means to be living Catholic. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.